Will the Lord return before I get done with Genesis? That's actually the better question. We will see. Um, All right, let me begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. And we do thank you for this book of Genesis. I pray that you would help us to understand it rightly and that you would bless those who read and who hear your book of Genesis as you declare at the beginning of it, as we read many months ago. Give me um, clarity and and correct uh, thought on these things and give all of us growing faith as we trust in you. And may this book be to that end for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's begin with chapter 21. We have two chapters left, and I'm hoping to get them done in the final two weeks. Because after next Sunday, I'm actually going to be on a week of study leave, and Robin and I are going to the Grand Canyon for my program, Origins. We're actually going to have a very busy week in the Grand Canyon with a bunch of shows we want to shoot. And uh, and we're going with one of the experts um, that we've had on our program who has taken more than 20 tours through the Grand Canyon. So it's going to be, um, um, I mean, I'm actually looking forward to when it's over. (laughs) I can't wait until the trip's over and we're back home. Um, But I'm sure we're going to have a good time, but it's going to be a very, very busy week. But that gives us two weeks to focus on the last two chapters. And since there's not a lot of controversy, I think we should be able to do that. I just want to remind you that in the book of Revelation, and especially it seems to me here at the end, You have all of these rich images and themes throughout the scriptures being brought together. Almost it just kind of rolls off John's tongue. And it's so rich. I mean, the thousands of references, uh, many direct quotes, but just sort of oblique references and bringing in some of the imagery just here and there and all over the place. I think one of the main reasons why Christians have such a tendency to misinterpret this book because we are just not immersed in Scripture like John was. John was so immersed in Scripture that he can just bring these things in from all over the place. And we, like, get enamored with one or two things. And we go running off and we try to make that sort of something that it isn't. And we take it and we, we sort of miss the forest for the trees. But I just want to notice that. That it, once again we're going to see. And I'm not even going to be able to begin to, to unpack all of the imagery and all of the um, things that John is, is bringing from the Old Testament, we're just not going to be able to get to all of them. But um, I'm going to try to do some enough at least to maybe give some, some clarity, hopefully, as, he's, as we get to this last vision. And this is the final vision of the book. So verse 1 of chapter 21, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This idea of newness, we see this again throughout the scriptures, new, things associated with the consummation that are found anticipatory in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, because the New Testament doesn't have the fullness either. And so you get over and over again, we sing a new song to the Lord. I will give you a new name, Jesus says. There is a new covenant coming. Jeremiah chapter 31 tells us, and Jesus says in the upper room, this is the new covenant, the cup of the new covenant. God promises to give a new heart, a new spirit. He's going to bring the new wine and put it in new wineskins. You'll speak with new tongues. I give you a new commandment, a new creation. 
There is a new man, a new thing in the earth. A woman encompasses a man, Jeremiah says. So all of this newness really refers to the consummation of the redemptive work of Christ that God has promised from the garden on, this newness. It's a, it's a true and thorough recreation that we Christians begin to experience in this life spiritually by faith, but we will fully experience in body and soul by sight at the consummation. So, you know, think of Paul talking about the new man that we are to put on every day. And there's a struggle because the old man's still there. So it's not done, right? It's not this full thing. Oh, we have the new man. Well, you know, by faith, we're beginning to walk in it, but we don't have the fullness of it. And we keep going back to the old man. And so, you know, in this book, we get this first statement, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, right? Think of creation. God created the heavens and the earth. Now the new creation is done. And John sees it in a vision. So couple of places where you get this reference, new heavens and a new earth. Isaiah 65, 17, behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Peter also speaks of a new heavens and a new earth. Second Peter three thirteen. we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter's writing this near the end of his life, second Peter in the sixties, it hasn't come yet, obviously. The new heavens and the new earth are something that the church is looking for still 30-some years after Jesus has ascended into heaven. New now is primarily in the sense of righteousness, in the sense that there is no more the old, the curse, pain, labor, thorns and thistles, sin, corruption, and ultimately death. If the newness has come in its fullness, then the oldness has passed away. And that means there's no more death, as we'll see in a moment. That's exactly what John says. And if you look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 and verse 12, you read of the current heavens and the current earth being cleansed, as Peter says, by fire, dissolved, loosed, and they will melt, he says. And so there is this old coming to an end by a, by a thorough cleansing and judgment that will result in a new. We don't want to think of a new as in a brand new as if the old is thrown away. That didn't happen to you when you became a believer, right? God didn't completely make a new person. He, he renewed you. That would be a better way to understand it. He took away your sin, but you were still the same person, especially if you're converted in life. This is, you really get this later in life, I'm saying, that you, know, you live 20, 30 years and you get converted and man, all things are new. But you're still you. God didn't completely throw the old you away and make a new you. He renewed you. And that's what I think we're seeing more here. And that's what I think the better exegetes see here with a new heavens and a new earth. In, in many ways, it's the same. God doesn't throw away his program. It's not like sin won and he had to begin again. No, God comes in and, and redeems and reconciles and restores. And that's the newness of it. But it's fully new. There is nothing of the old left. He completely wins. And so um, even as justified spirits here, I say, will receive new physical bodies. Uh, there'll be a new, a renewed physical creation. And our bodies will be somewhat the same somehow. Not that they'll be the, the same imperfections. You know, the man who's born without a hand isn't going to have a new body without a hand. It's going to be completely restored. But we're going to recognize our bodies as our bodies in some sense 
Otherwise, all of the scripture imagery about them being raised doesn't make sense. It would just say, he makes a new one for you. The old one's gone. Well, that's not the case. Sin doesn't, again, win in any way. Uh, what sin did is gone. And then we get what we should have had from the beginning. Remember, God cursed the ground for man's sake. Now man is fully redeemed and the curse is fully lifted. It's fully reversed. Think of Romans, going back to chapter 8, beginning in verse 20. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And so that's the curse on the ground. The ground is frustrated now. The ground can't do what it should do, which is just be fruitful. Now it brings weeds, right? And you've got to work like crazy to get the fruit. In the renewed earth, it's going to be the opposite. The ground is going to naturally bring fruit. You're, going to, you're not going to be able to stop it. And you'd have to work to bring weeds, which you wouldn't be able to do because there's no weeds, seeds to uh, begin to bring. But uh, the creation itself also will be delivered. See, the creation will be delivered from the bondage, not destroyed and then a new one made. The creation will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation... It's everything that is, groans and labors with birth, birth pangs. That's the idea. There's these birth pangs because God has promised redemption. And, and everything's trying to give birth. You know, you think of that woman in travail. There's going to come a baby. Well, that's kind of the way God's describing the new creation. That the creation itself has these pangs. And that we also, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. But we still groan, right? We still, you know, Paul says, how long shall I be in this body of death? And we still have the pains of this world that we long to go and be with Christ. We groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the, the adoption uh, and the redemption of our body. And so this is what has passed away. As Isaiah 65 says, the former things, all things limited, all things imperfect, all things tainted with sin. Uh, everything that, you know, everything is turning to dust no more. Everything is temporal. I think that, you know, think of it in this way. The, the second law of thermodynamics comes to an end. Things don't, con, you know, of themselves go back to nothing anymore. That's the curse. Everything becoming undone. Everything winding down. Everything returning to dust. Everything goes from bad to worse. Things if left to themselves go from bad to worse. Now things if left to themselves will go from good to better. Because the earth will be what it was supposed to be in the beginning. It will go towards fruitfulness order, perfection. No more sea. There is no more sea. I don't think in, in an ultimate literal sense there'll be no more bodies of water. Um, I do think that the sea which covers the vast majority of the world, what is it, something like more than three quarters or, of the world, four-fifths of the world is covered by the sea, which greatly limits where man can go and live. Um, maybe we're going to see that greatly curtailed. But we do see in the throne room, all the way back in chapter 4, verse 6, there was a sea, but it was like glass. Remember, it was tranquil as a crystal. No more destructive power of the sea, which is what Israel saw and experienced, of course, in the flood of Noah, the sea covering the earth, destroying everything, the judgment that the sea represents over and over again. And, of course, all four of Daniel's beasts, which were pagan empires, came out of the sea. And the beast of Revelation comes out of the sea. So the sea is this great place of judgment. And so remember, these are images, right? I mean, these are, these are symbols in Revelation. You, you can't hyper-literalize this text because, number one, New Jerusalem coming down from heaven is at the same time a city as we're going to see and a bride. It is also a bride because we'll get there. 
He showed me the bride and I saw the city. The bride is the city. The city is the bride. And of course, the the bride is the church. And so you have this idea and the church are the people of God. And so that's this imagery. And so, you know, it's, I mean, it's complicated, but I think that's all clear in the text as we get to. So we want to think in terms of what is this symbolic uh, picture that, the, that, that, what's the reality behind that? What is God saying to us that we are to understand here in this, this um, picture, this idyllic picture that he's giving to us? And so the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the chosen city, the people of God, um, of course, Jerusalem was where the temple was, and that's where God's presence was, and that's where God's people had to go in worship to be in his presence. So all the things that Jerusalem was, God chose Jerusalem so that Israel would have a place to go where God himself would dwell. And that's what we're getting here. God is going to dwell with man fully now. No more partial, temporal, I'm here, but you've got to stay away or you'll die. Um, no more of that. Now it's all coming down. So uh, I want to notice here, coming down out of heaven, and you know what I think is really to be emphasized here is this city isn't built by man. It was in heaven, and it comes to the earth. To me, that's just so crucial today, that all of the, uh, all of the heaven, heavenly promise, all of the reward that God has for us, all of the glory that he's going to shower upon his people is 100% by grace. the work of Christ. We are not down here doing things that we're somehow going to be part of the city of God and our reward. We're we're making our reward on heaven, uh, in heaven, in the afterlife. That's not what this life is about. We are not shoring up, as it were, um, our heavenly rewards. Now, God is going to reward us for our works, but those rewards, as Augustine said, are entirely of grace. You don't earn them. God gives you rewards, even for the tiniest things, but it's for, his, it's for Christian service, right? It's for Christian love. A cup of cold water given in my name, not a nation taken over for Christ, right? A cup of cold water given in my name, that won't lose its reward. Oh, we've taken over this school system and made it Christian, so that's going to go into heaven now. No. Your rewards are those things that you have done, and, and really the, it's the fruit of the Spirit, but... I just want to notice uh, from some verses here that we can see. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 John, etc. Um, that our best works, as Westminster Larger Catechism says, 78, our best works are imperfect and defiled before God. They can't, we can't be building heaven on earth. There would be sin in heaven then. With our best works. Not one of them could go and make part of this city or that would be the part of the city you didn't want to go. That would be the corrupt part. That you've made with your best works. So it comes down from heaven. Notice some of these verses that really point to this. And this, again, these verses are to Christians and to the church. 1 Corinthians 7.31. The form of this world is passing away. 1 John 2.17. And this world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will by no means pass away. Again, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. He doesn't say, I'm going, and you you prepare this place that's going to be the kingdom of God. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that you will be where I am also. 
Hebrews 11, now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country, not the country we're all going to build with our collective goodness. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Not we're going to prepare it in some way. Again, larger catechism 78. Whence ariseth the imperfection of sanctification in believers? Answer, the imperfection of sanctification in believers ariseth from the remnants of sin abiding in every part. How can what I'm doing down here be part of heaven? And the perpetual lustings of the flesh against the spirit, whereby they are often foiled with temptations, fall into many sins. These are the best Christians, are hindered in all their spiritual services. Notice, and their best works are imperfect and defiled in the sight of God. So how can I build heaven with my best works? Is heaven a defiled and imperfect place? That's what it would be if our works are going to go there. So this city is coming down out of heaven. It's entirely perfected and built by God. It's God's grace. And remember, the city is like a bride adorned at her wedding. Notice it in verse 2. Then I, John, saw. I, John, isn't in um, uh, the um, critical text. It's only in the majority text. I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So you're already getting a mixed image. It's a city prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And you can think of a woman on her wedding day and on her wedding ceremony. And we'll look at that a little bit more when we get to verse 9 because that's where he talks about the bride. But let's just hold on to that for a second. And then we get these consummation themes, right? What do we believe in the consummation? God will be with us perfectly and fully what we lost in the garden. And so that's what he says. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. The thing we lost in the garden, they had to get thrown out of the garden, which was God's tabernacle on earth. That's where God, it was God's garden. And God would come and walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And when he comes, when they sin, remember they flee from him. They can't be in his presence anymore because of sin. And God removes them from his presence and he puts the angel with the flaming sword. And that's the way it's been ever since. God is separate from us. He can't dwell with us anymore. We can't dwell with burnings and fire because we're sinful. And throughout the Bible, and of course God emphasized, this dwelling with man is emphasized three times in this verse. Behold, tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. God himself will be with them. Three times in one verse. That's, that's the hope. That's what we're all longing for. That's what we couldn't have. That's what even in, as Christians we don't fully have. So it was partially restored in Israel. God would be with his people. How? Well, he'll dwell in the tabernacle. And Moses can go in, but nobody else. Right? And when, every, when Moses went in, there was a flame of fire that went over it. And all the people would stand at their tents and watch from a distance. And God would speak to Moses face to face. And even Moses is a type of Christ. And he wants God to show him his glory because he doesn't get it all. And God has to, remember, puts the hand over him and lets him see his back and so forth. And so there's this partial, okay, I can dwell with you. And then when they sin with the golden calf, God says, go up into the land. I'm not going to go with you. And remember what Moses says, if you don't go with us, we won't go. What's the land without God? So that's the ultimate. God is your God. Remember what God says to Abram. I am your reward. I am 
the one that I'm going to give myself to you. So this is the promise from the beginning that we get to have God again and, and, and be with God and him with us. Partially restored in Israel, tabernacle, and then the temple. And again, you could go in certain courts of the temple and the priest could only get so close. And then the high priest and then only one day a year. And even that's a symbol. He goes in and what does he see? He doesn't see God. He sees the ark which is a symbol of God's presence. And so, again, and then a great veil, that curtain that keeps us away. So God's with us, but he's away from us. And so it's imperfect, right? It's, it's, it's not the end. It can't be the end. All that symbolism just needing to be repeated, sacrifices constantly. We can't dwell with them. We have to have bloodshed so that we're not killed. And then even with Christ coming and putting an end to the sacrifices, and even with God dwelling in our hearts by faith, and we are in him by faith, that's not fullness, right? We, we still have sin in our hearts. You know, there, there's, not, there's a longing that we should have, a greater dwelling with God. And so this typology and symbolism that's even now in the church by faith and the longing that Paul has, it would be much better to go and be with God, right? And we should all have that longing. That's what I think we're seeing fulfilled. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's the chief promise of the covenant of grace. It starts in Genesis and it ends in Revelation. God says it over and over again. And I will be your God and you will be my people. And what's, what's that? That's the, the brought back together, the reconciliation. And, and they get tokens of that. And there's a great move forward with that in the church. He's our God and we're his people. He dwells in us by faith, but not by sight. Not yet. And, and we still die and we still get sick. You know, we had that funeral service for Sandy yesterday. That still happens. We haven't reached the fullness yet. If this is the fullness, God help us. Paul says we are of all men most to be pitied if Christ has not been raised and therefore if we are not raised. So Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, he will swallow up death forever and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. That's what we're seeing here, right? God will wipe, verse 4, God will wipe away every tear and there'll be no more death. So this is the, this is, these, these verses push me to say, this is the end, this is the consummation. By the way, not everyone thinks that. I'm going to touch on some of the other theories if we have time. But some see this as the millennial kingdom where things get a lot better, but Jesus really hasn't come back yet, and it's not heaven and the eternal state yet. It's the thousand-year reign in some sense. Satan is still uh, around and loose, etc., but I don't know how you can do that with um, no more death, nor sorrow. And these are like announcements as the city's coming down. This is what it means. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So they're gone. Verse 5, I make all things new. Now, again, some who take that view that this is the millennial kingdom... And this is really, it's, there's really two schools who, who go there. Uh, that would be the post-mill camp and the dispensational camp. That in some sense, what we're seeing here is just the church age victorious, not the consummation. This is not the end. This is the thousand-year reign of Christ, uh, whether in, in some literal sense, the dispensationalist, or whether in the church age becoming better and better. Uh, and they see that, and I could give you, I, don't, I didn't bring it, but I could give you the way in which they interpret each one of these passages. But it's not the fullness, it's not the consummation is the big thing. And one of the things that they'll do is insist on verse 5, Behold, I am making all things new. That's what they want to say. Instead of, I make all things new. I am making. See, it's not done yet. 
consummation hasn't got here yet. You're still going to, you're still going to die. It's, it's going to be like Isaiah, you know, the child's going to die at, at, at a hundred years old and the old man is going to live on beyond and the lion and the lamb and they'll, and they take it in a, in a literal sense rather than in a picture, what I, the way I, what I would see it more of heaven. It's a symbol of the perfection of heaven. It's not uh, literal, but if that's the case, and then they want to say, well, I am making all things new. The problem with that is that it's a simple present tense verb, all right? And simple present tense, we translate all the time with, like the New King James, New King James, I make. If you take this whole verse, if I, want you, I want you to look at verse 5. And if you hyper-literalize it, and I'll give you the way that you, you could do it, um, where God says, where he who sat on the throne says, Behold, I make all things new. Um, and he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. You could uh, translate it, And the one sitting on the throne said, Because it's actually a participle there. Present participle. And the one sitting on the throne said, And Said here is an aorist, which is a simple past. The one sitting on the throne said, Behold, I make. Now that's a simple present active. That's not a participle. That's why I think it's better to say I make than I am making. But I get I am making is ongoing present tense too. It's not a big deal. And he says to me, that's a simple present. So make is a simple present and says is a simple present. Now, in English, they make it, I said. English does this all the time. If I took verses with the, of the Bible all the time, we'll take an aorist and we'll make it you know, present. And we'll take a present and we'll make it aorist. It's just the way we talk in English. And when you get caught up on this stuff and you insist on something like I am making over I make, which is not justified by the grammar because it's a present active. It's not a participle. Um, and the same author doesn't do that with the second part of the verse. He doesn't insist on and he is saying to me. Because that's present active too. And so, you know, I just think when, whenever you read stuff where, where they, uh, such a fine grammar point and the, the case hinges on that, I think you should back off even without knowing Greek and say, that can't be the case. Uh, it's just not justified by the grammar. You can, you, again, you can do that, but you can't hinge things on, oh, it has to be I am making. No, it's present simple. Then, then it has to be and he is saying. Why don't you say that? But you don't. Because you, if you did that with all the present tense uh, verbs in the New Testament, it mean you would never get done doing it because we almost always make them uh, not in the participle form. But the important thing is God is making all things new. And I can say is making and it doesn't uh, force it to be a millennial kingdom now. God himself assures us of this. He says these words are faithful and true. I think that's the, that's the stress of the verse. These words are true and faithful. This is what we don't want to believe. Oh, is it real? Is heaven real? Is it going to happen? Are we really going to dwell with God? And I think that's why it comes in. Right. For these words are faithful. Yes, they are true. God is himself assuring us that this will happen one day. This world is not going to keep going in this cycle where we live and die and we dream of heaven and we live and die and we dream of heaven. And it never really is going to come, you know, because it's all kind of a psychological, spiritual thing. No, I am the Alpha, there was a beginning, and I am the Omega, there will be an end. We haven't gotten there yet. There will be a generation 
who will be alive on the earth and there will be an end. To not believe in a literal consummation at some point, I think. Um, I think it's a denial of the most basic creeds, right? Um, The Apostles' Creed. He is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And we we believe that. All right, so we are... uh, not in the church, it seems to me, building the kingdom of God. It comes down out of heaven. We are bearing witness to it. We proclaim it. We call all flesh to enter it by faith. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are in a very imperfect and very limited sense. We manifest the kingdom, but chiefly in bearing the fruit of the Spirit. That's how we manifest the kingdom. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's how we manifest the reality of a kingdom that's coming. That's why Jesus said to pray, thy kingdom come. All right, the church is the manifestation. We could even say the outpost of the kingdom in this fallen world. But we are not one-to-one the kingdom. There is much more to come. All right, we manifest it, we show it forth, we call people to enter it, we proclaim it. It's in Christ by faith. But we don't go out and take over organizations. Oh, we brought the kingdom now to Sears because we took it over. The, the CEO is Christian. The kingdom has come to Sears now. Or, or towns. We're going to take over this town and make it Christian and we're bringing the kingdom in. Or lands. This is going to be a Christian nation because the kingdom is coming. Or schools. We got our school to confess Christ and it's a Christian school now. We just brought the kingdom to this school. Or political office. We got a Christian elected. Now the kingdom has come to the office of the Senate. You know, the Supreme Court justice, the kingdom, laws. We got to get these Christian laws passed so that the kingdom comes to America. No, the kingdom is brought down out of heaven. It's never going to come until then. We don't bring it in. We don't grow it by taking things over. Jesus owns everything now. He reigns over everything now. I do want to do some of these things because I want to see us become a more just state and I want to see justice more in the world. But that is not bringing the kingdom. It's going to come down out of heaven built entirely by Christ. And again, we get to experience it by faith and we bear the fruit of it and call people to enter it. Brandon. Things like what? Oh, oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, like, like having a Christian school and getting more Christian people elected. Yes, absolutely. And I want to do those things. But I want to make sure I'm thinking of this is what I do as a good citizen of the state, loving my neighbor. Really, it's the law, right? I want to bring people in conformity to God, whether it's in this or that arena. But the kingdom is the kingdom of grace. The kingdom is the kingdom that Christ brings by grace. Our obedience to the law in this world is always going to be defiled and imperfect. What I just read to you earlier from the Westminster Confession. Our best works, defiled and imperfect. Our best candidate, defiled and imperfect. It's not the kingdom come. I make. That's the emphasis. You got it, Ron. I. Mm. 
Yeah. Yes. We can trust that he will move forward and he will bring things where he wants them to go. And it's it's not us, like you said, being an activist in, in a situation, but rather this is as God always does, your name, the end damn means. Mm. We love our neighbor as ourselves, John. I want you to notice, so, and just to, you know, bring it back to the four, if you check, again, the four great commissions of the church, just take the emphasis from each one, that's the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then Acts talks about, Jesus makes it clear as he commissions his disciples. What are they supposed to do till he comes back? Make disciples by bearing witness to Christ, you will be my witnesses till the ends of the age, through the gospel, go and preach to every creature, and if you want to include John, you can in a certain sense. Because he, what does he say to Peter three times? Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Feed my lambs. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Bringing God's word, saving people, growing in grace and faith. And again, yes, loving my neighbor as myself. You know, wanting to see uh, things in the world come under uh, um, conformity to the word of God and the law. But always imperfect. That's not the kingdom. The kingdom is Christ returning to the earth. So uh, verse 6, it is done. The gra- I think this has got to be the grace of God perfecting the saints. It's done. Um, the same thing is said, if you look in chapter 16, verse 17, with the final part of God's wrath being poured out. Because the seventh bowl is the, it says, with, and with this, the wrath is complete. Verse 15, 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the last seven plagues, the seven bowls. For in them the wrath of God is complete. It's finished. And so when the seventh angel pours his bowl in sixteen seventeen, a loud voice came out of heaven saying, it is done. Same exact phrase here in verse 6. It is done. What's done? Well, before it was the wrath punishing. Here it's the grace perfecting. This is the consummation. It is done. It is over. All right, so verse 6, I will give the water of life freely. Again, this is grace alone. This is the picture of the gospel. God, the water of life, Jesus talks about that. That's how we're saved. Uh, and that's what this, uh, um, I think, again, this picture is representing these, this symbolic city coming down from heaven, which is at the same time the bride, which is at the same time then the church. Again, you, you've got all these images together. I will give the water to him who comes freely. And then verse, uh, to him who overcomes, right, verse 7, shall inherit all things. Well, where have we seen that? In every one of the seven letters. To him who overcomes, Jesus says, I'll do this. To him who overcomes, I'll do this. Clearly, in the church age, people having to fight sin. You know, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. She's taught our, uh, my servants to, to fornicate and to uh, eat food sacrificed to idols. But to him who overcomes, to him who resists that sin and still lives by faith. Right? And so this is the promise again, saying this is the, this is the fulfillment now. I don't think, you know, what John is saying, there's no more death, but you still have to overcome. He's showing the fullness of that, having come now. You know, we're, we know by faith we're going to have eternal life. John's just reiterating the promise that it's all those who drank by the water freely who came by grace alone. 
and they overcame. They lived out their faith to death. And therefore, uh, they inherit all things. Uh, and I think that's all he's saying here. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. I will be their God, they shall be my people. All right? So, perseverance of the saints, you have to persevere. That's not the cause of our election, it's the proof of it. If you're elect, you persevere. And this is what Jesus says to all the seven churches, and this is what John says now at the end. Now, verse um, 8 is the one sort of, um, I don't know, negative <laughs> in this picture. Because there's an, just as there's an eternal heaven, there is an eternal hell. And just as heaven will be real and have a physical aspect, heaven will come to the earth. There'll be a new you know, place where we will be body and soul. Well, there's going to be a new place where the wicked will be body and soul. And that's what John is reminding us here in verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Right? In the first death, our body is separated from our soul and the body decays and the soul goes to a place of punishment, which isn't, I mean, it's hell, but it's not the final hell. Just as I think the place where the soul goes to be with Jesus is heaven, but not the final heaven. Why? Because we don't have our bodies yet. We are body and soul, so there's a, there's a state of incompletion. And Paul talks about that. It's not the fullness yet when we go to be with the Lord. With the Lord, it's far better, but even those souls under the altar are still longing for those bodies to be restored. And God gives them robes, and we saw that earlier. But here is now the fullness of hell. It's open. There's a physical reality to this. They're thrown into hell with bodies and souls. Right now they're being punished in soul only. They'll be punished in body only, and yet those bodies will not decay. That's an, you know, those bodies will continue to be uh, in existence. They're not going to grow old just like ours, and they're, but they're going to be punished forever. And that's what the picture is. Notice the cowards are the first part of the lake and the liars are the last part of the lake. Many see here um, false believers in the church. Um, that this is a picture of, of that primarily because we took care of all of the wicked in chapter 20. And so that, you know, Jesus talking about the purification of the church, the one in, who didn't have the robes on being thrown out and things like that. Um, the virgins who didn't bring the oil, though they claimed to be uh, waiting for the bridegroom and so forth, and seeing these things. And uh, I don't have time to go into it, but some of the commentators talking about, well, the cowardly, you know, those who really don't press forward with faith. And when the world pushes on them, they give in. And the unbelieving, you know, they, they say they have faith, but they don't. Uh, abominable murderers, of course, harboring uh, hatred in your heart for others and putting on the show outwardly against sexually immoral sorcerers, uh, believing in things like that, idolaters, liars, um, just being false, hypocrite uh, Christians. Some of that is, um, I was surprised at how much of that I got in some of the commentaries that this is really about that. The, all three synoptics use the word faithless when it says unbelieving, or uh, Jesus says that in Matthew 17, 41, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? That's when he's with people that claim to be believers in God, remember, but they didn't believe in him. And he called them faithless, though they were outwardly in the church. And that's the word for unbelieving here. Faithless. Um, 
So clearly he was referring to Jews claiming to be the people of God. The last part of chapter 20, by the way, in some ways is thought as the negative counterpart to these first eight verses. And if you read the last part of chapter 20, you get the great white throne judgment. You get all this judgment and, and death in Hades being thrown into the lake of fire. And it, so it's, it's judgment with one positive verse, verse 15, the book of life. The book of life is mentioned. Well, in, in the first eight verses of our chapter, it's all positive verses with one negative verse, the lake of fire. The lake of fire is mentioned. Uh, and so there you get sort of the wicked at the end. And here you get, uh, in a recapitulation, the righteous at the end. Interestingly, the bride now in verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven plagues, uh, seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Now, the bride, the lamb's wife, over and over again, the church, right? In the Old Testament, Israel is the wife of God. In fact, even after the divided kingdom, God talked about the two sisters, Judah and Samaria, his his wives, and how Samaria first was the adulteress, and so he divorced her. But Judah saw that, and Judah didn't straighten up, and she's playing the harlot even worse, and God's going to divorce her too. But that imagery of God marrying his people, and that's throughout in the New Testament as well, and we all know that. So now we're saying, come, the voice says, come, One of the angels, rather, says, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And what does he do? Verse 10, he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the city. I'm going to show you the wife, the bride, the church, and it's the city. That's what I'm saying. The city coming down from heaven is the bride coming down from heaven, which is the church. So you've got multiple layer mixture of symbols and pictures that are all trying to show us the beauty and the perfection of eternal life, the security of it, that we get God ultimately and forever. And so I think when you put all those together, otherwise I don't know how you can literally be a city and a woman and a, and a whole bunch of believers at the same time. That's going to be hard to pull off. Um, you've got to say this is multiple symbols with this reality of spiritual consummation. This is the consummation that we've been waiting for. This is the beginning of the eternal state as as the church comes in. Hendrickson, by the way, contrasts the bride in chapter 21 with the harlot in chapter 17. And I put that contrast for you in that chart. Just look at how, sorry, in the contrast, he compares. Um, Look at how how, uh, similar the, the chapter goes, so chapter 17, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me saying, chapter 21, about the bride, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the last seven plagues came to me and talked with me saying, what does he say in 17? Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on the many waters. What does he say in 21? Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And Chapter 17, he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. In chapter 21, he carried me away in the spirit to the great and high mountain. Chapter 17, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. In chapter 21, and he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. In chapter 17, that woman was full of names of blasphemy having seven heads and ten horns. So the, again, the, the, the beast and the power of, the, uh, of rebellious, unbelieving man in religion and in false states, uh, states that 
uh, rebel against God, tyranny, false religion, idolatry. What does the woman, the bride have? She has the glory of God. Blasphemy, power and might, horns, heads, human wisdom. She has the glory of God. The woman, the harlot, verse 17, was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. And likewise, the bride has precious stones, jasper, crystal, clear as light. So what you get here is this counterfeit. That's the world, this counterfeit church. Uh, And throughout, Poistris points out Satan is the great counterfeiter. In the book of Revelation, you have God and, and Satan is the dragon. You have the lamb and Satan is the beast. You have the Holy Spirit and Satan is the false prophet. You have the church, the bride, and Satan is the harlot, the world. You have the holy Jerusalem and you have Babylon. Um, and that's the imagery, I think, that we're seeing. Uh, verses 12 and 13, the walls, the gates, the angels, the foundations. Um, I think this is symbolic, again, s- security, right? Safety. The 12 tribes and the 12 apostles, one people of God, not two peoples of God. They're together as part of the city, the gates and the foundations. In verses 14 to 17, you get these measurements, which is very similar to Ezekiel. I think it should have been Ezekiel 41, not Ezekiel 14, but um, except here it's much bigger. Because in Ezekiel, he has that vision of the temple, and and they measure the temple. Here, you get this vision of the city, which is also the bride, and now he says, go and measure And what do you get? 12,000 stadia, which is approximately 1,400 miles. The New American Standard says 15, and some say 1,385. Obviously, there's some flexibility to what a stadia is. But it's a perfect cube. Height, width, length. Jerry. How long is the furrow? Well, um, I I didn't look at how long one is, but 12,000 are 1,400 miles. 1,400, so like from here to, I don't know, Cuba? I mean, it's a long ways. 12,000 is 100 miles, roughly. No, 1,400 miles. 1,400 miles. Or some say 1,500. The New American Standard says 1,500 miles. That's how long the city is. 1,500 miles. That's how wide the city is. And 1,500 miles high. Mount Everest is six miles high. Mount Everest. Not even six miles. This is where the satellites, or man-made satellites, are lower than 1,500 miles into the air. This is in space. Okay, again, I think it's a symbol. It's a picture of the glory, the grandeur, right? All the world could fit in this city. It's this perfect cube, which, by the way, is the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was a perfect cube. This is the Holy of Holies come to earth. This is the fullness of the whole. So much bigger, so much greater than even the picture that Isaiah got to see, or Ezekiel got to see. So the 216 feet is what the, the, the walls are. That can't be height. It doesn't say so the city is 1,500 miles high, but the walls go 216 feet. It's a little bit low. 
that's thickness, and that's what uh, the, typically the walls would be measured. In, in Ezekiel, I think the walls were like 20 feet thick or something like that. Uh, 216 feet. And by the way, angel and human measure, it's just saying as the angel measurement is the human measurement. Don't think in terms of, oh, this is something different. So that what John is trying to say there, you should think of something that big, right? But again, uh, in a symbolic way, this is the fullness, the glory, the beauty. There could never be a city like this. And there can never be a bride like the church. There can never be a people like the people of God that, that man could make God has made this. All right, so then you get these precious stones. Eight of the 12 are on the high priest's breastplate that he would bring into the presence of God. The other four could be John transliterating them. So it may be all 12. Some scholars think it is. We also see these same stones on the king of Tyre when he's pictured as a kind of false Satan, right? He was in Eden. He was the, he was the ch- chief cherub and all that. And so here he is trying to imitate God with his stones, and of course, Eden before the fall, some of these stones are said to be there in Eden. So again, these, again, just think of the beauty, the wealth, the glory of heaven, the streets of gold. That pearl, by the way, the gates of a city would have been as high as, uh, would have been in towers. The gate, city gates in an ancient walled city, the, the gates were a tower. So they were higher than the wall. And the wall would be as high as the city. So the wall is going to be 1,500 miles like the city is. Thickness, 216 feet. So you have a pearl that's 1,500 miles high. You know, I know we think of the pearly gates. This is a pearl. And it could, think of a pearl itself is, is, the, is because of the agitation that's caused in an oyster that he has to build this thing to protect himself, as it were. Uh, all of these images are images of security, wealth, power, protection, right? And yet the gates are open because the gospel is always free. The gospel is always believe. You can always enter. There's an angel at every gate. Why do we need the angel at every gate? Again, it's a picture of power and security. The angel now isn't keeping man out. It's keeping evil out. No evil can enter. That's the point of verse 8 and um, uh, later here um, where it says, verse 27, nothing can enter that defiles, that causes an abomination or lie, only those that are written in the Lamb's book of life. Um, so no, Isaiah talks about uh, the, 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 the perfect sort of city of, of Israel. You're, I'll lay your foundation with sapphires. I'll make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal. By the way, in Psalm 45, which I'm not going to read to you, you get some of this same kind of imagery, again, of God's people as, in a sense, a, a woman, and yet in the same time as a city. Um, Psalm 45, you are fairer than the sons of men. This is, you know, he's writing this, this love letter. Grace is poured out, uh, and he has this, this great king, this powerful warrior, and then his throne, etc., and how good it is. And then your garments are centered out of the ivory palaces. The king daughters are, are, are um, your honorable women. And then you get, uh, consider the city. The king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Worship him, the daughters. And so this, this royal daughter and this royal king and this royal city count, you know, Israel's towers, how great they are. Thank you. <laughs> so no temple, no symbolic presence of God. God is there now. The whole point of the temple was in a sense to make God dwell, but in a sense to keep God's people away. No temple anymore. Uh, churches spiritually 
now in the presence of God physically as well. Um, Verse 23 doesn't say there is no sun or moon. It just says we don't need it. We don't need it anymore. And of course, no more night. Night is a symbol of darkness and uncertainty and fear. Uh, And that's, I think, what it's pointing out more than, oh, there's not, you know, somehow the earth isn't going to rotate anymore in front of a sun and moon, so there's no more night. Uh, Just like there's no more sea. There's nothing to fear. There's no more uncertainty, darkness, where the wicked can conspire and stuff. That's, I think, more the picture. Um, Verses 24 to 27... Some see this again as arguments for a millennial temple, a post-mill victorious church, because there's still nations that are coming in. And, and I think, again, that's taking this too literally. This is an image of perfection and security and wealth and beauty. Um, to try to, again, make this in some literal sense, oh, there are actually nations bringing their wealth in because, you know, the church is so triumphant now and that these pictures of other things are, is the gospel being received by so many people, and uh, the world is, is Christian, as it were. And I think if that's the case, then Revelation never talks about heaven. We never get beyond the church age, because the next chapter is just going to expand on this. We never get there. We never get to the second coming. We just get, oh, wow, the church is victorious, and these things are all, you know, pictorial. There really still is death. It's just, you know, people are living longer because everybody's so good to each other and the gospel's penetrating and uh, there's no end. There's no end. We don't get there. Um, I think if it's just a dispensational or post-mill church kingdom in this great victorious way, not only is there no actual picture of heaven and hell in the book of Revelation because those judgments then have to be in, a, in the temporal, um, there's no consummation and it never stops It seems to me that some of the reasons why I would argue against that is a new heavens and a new earth is consummation language. No more death. It is done. If that's not the end, then why is it done when the wrath it is done was the end of the wrath? Bride, the city coming down from heaven to the earth. That's what Christ promised would be the end. And again, no need for sun or moon or night. Um, A perfectly pure church No eschatology pictures that before the second coming. Not even the most positive amillennialists or the most um, um, vigorous postmillennialists say there's no more sin, period. No more death. Death actually is gone. And so you've got to pictorialize the things I think we should take literally. No death. That's what we're waiting for. Death in Hades was cast into the fire in chapter 20. If that's just a picture, then where's the hope of the reality? So I think, again, you've got to see this. I I think you lose the the joy uh, if this isn't the ultimate eternal state and only really, really successful church age, but Christ hasn't come back yet. So uh, I think what we're picturing here is universal knowledge, Everybody, that's the nations. Everybody knows the Lord perfectly. That would be the image in John's day to say that. All the nations are coming in because everybody there is saved and knows the Lord. They're all bringing their treasures because everybody there is in the eternal state. Uh, They're all showing their allegiance to God. So these are pictures of the way in which John would say it if he wanted to say it was the end. So that's the way I would see it anyway. Um, 
The city and the bride metaphor, this is the church consummated. This is the new heavens and the earth, the earth uh, in, in a symbolic picture of beauty and glory and power and wealth, universal and perfect acknowledgement of God, worship and loyalty, perfect, full security, no evil coming in, uh, open gates, yet powerful angels, immense city, riches beyond imagining, in the best language that John can come up with. This is the second coming. This is the eternal state. And I think this is what we're, we're all hoping for, um, that we get to actually experience one day. So, uh, Lord willing, we'll finish chapter 22 next week. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that your promises are yea and amen, that there is an end coming, not an end of things, as it were, or of us, but an end of sin and an end of partiality and imperfection and all the rest. You Make all things new. We'll get to experience that one day. Father, help us to believe that in Jesus' name. Amen.